Well, we uh, are going to look at Scripture now, and uh, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew 25. And uh, we're reading the last section of the chapter, Matthew 25, 31 to 46. 31 to 46. And uh, so let's hear what Jesus says to his disciples. When the Son of Man comes in, in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothed you? And when did we see you, a sick, you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not give, clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And did not minister to you. Then I will answer them saying. Truly I say to you. As you did not do it to the least of one of these. You did it not to me. And these will go away to eternal punishment. And to the righteous. But the righteous into eternal life. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. We thank you that you are the author of all scripture through your spirit and that Jesus Christ is a great prophet who speaks by his spirit. And we pray that you come and minister to our spirits now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's taken us a long time to get through chapter 25. Uh, been interrupted quite a few times mostly by me going and doing other things but uh, we've finally got to the end of chapter 25 and, uh, and here of course Jesus is teaching his disciples, his 12 disciples on the Mount of Olives um, after having been in the temple at the beginning of chapter 24 and he's been dealing with this, uh, this great theme of the return of the Son of Man at the end of the age at the last day and so far, Jesus has used uh, parables to explain the implications of his return in chapter 25. So we've looked at, over the last month or so, we've looked at verses 1 to 
13, the parable of the ten virgins, where the expected bridegroom finally arrives for the wedding feast. And then in uh, uh, 14 to 30, uh, we have the parable of the talents, or the the three servants, um, where the master returns to find, find out what the servants have done with what he has left with them. And uh, he will settle accounts with them. And then lastly, uh, we come to this passage where we have a description of this final day in world history. Where the Son of Man comes in glory. So verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. It is, uh, it brings explicitly into view this picture of the last judgment. And there will be a great separation. So verse 33, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And it will culminate in eternal life and blessing for the sheep on his right, and eternal fire and punishment for what he calls the goats on his left. And so what comes into view here is the reality of heaven and hell. Now it's interesting that this last passage that we have read this morning is different from the first two. You know, some people find it easy to dismiss parables. Oh, he's only talking figuratively about things and he's just telling stories and we can kind of take or leave the stories, the parables, uh, as, as we like. But Jesus in this last section speaks with sobering directness without parables about what's going to happen at the end and so let me break this parable down into this passage down into to four parts and we're going to look at four things first of all the coming of the judge who is he and why does he come why does he need to come this way why does he need to come for judgment secondly who's going to face this judgment and then thirdly On what basis is he going to judge everyone? And then fourthly, we're going to talk about the nature of the judgment. And it's an uneven spread of uh, emphasis on all these four points. But uh, uh, so some will be quick, quicker than others. Friends, most of the time it's a you know, it's a delight for me to preach the gospel to you, to preach the word of God to you. But this is, um, in a sense, this is a passage that gives me no pleasure at all. Because it raises for us weighty issues. It may even move us to tears. Maybe it should move us to tears as we think about the future for some people. Because the matters contained and are so weighty and so serious because it's all about our ultimate destiny 
it answers one of the big questions that, you know, big questions that plague everyone, I think. You know, what am I here for? Where am I going? Where's my life going? What will happen when I die? Everybody carries those questions around with them. And everybody's in a sea of confusion until you come to the gospel and you come to the teaching of Jesus. And Jesus here is presenting to us the bad news as well as the good news. And that's not pleasant. Not pleasant for me to, to speak about and it's not pleasant for you to hear perhaps. But we need to remember this, that of all the people in the Bible who spoke about uh, hell of eternal judgment, Jesus spoke about it the most in the Bible. Lots of people like to say Jesus is, never talks about these things. That hell is an Old Testament thing, or you know, judgment is an Old Testament thing. No, Jesus spoke more about it than anyone else. And we need to pay attention to what he's saying. We need to listen to him before it's too late for us. Well, first of all, let's think about the coming of this judge. And, and of course, the one who's coming is, is Jesus himself. He is, uh, and he refers to himself in a number of ways in this passage. Uh, firstly, he uses the term son of man in verse uh, 31. And he uses, he's talking in the third person. He's talking about the son of man. But he's really referring to himself. It's a messianic title, son of man which is drawn from the book of Daniel. drawn from chapter 7 of that book. And Jesus is applying it to himself as the answer to that messianic prophecy that he is going to come and rule and reign over the kingdom. And in verse 13, and this son of man, secondly, is, is described also as a king. That uh, verse 31 describes him as the Son of Man coming in glory, where he will sit on the glorious throne. And then in verses 34 and 40, he speaks about the, tells, Jesus tells us about the king speaking to the sheep on the one hand and the goats on the other. And he speaks as the king. So he's the Son of Man, and he is the king. He's already the king, but he's the king that's coming in glory. And authority to sit on his throne. And then in verse 34 he speaks of God as his father. My father. He says in verse 34. In other words, Jesus is identifying himself, the son of man, this king, as the son of God. The very son of God. And it is God, it is the, the Son, that's by the Son that God gives the role of being judge over all the earth in his Father's name. So this is Jesus, the Son of Man, the King of Kings, the very Son of God coming in glory. How will he come? In what manner is he going to come? Well, of course, first of all, he came in humbly. He came in poverty. He came as a nobody. Born into a no, nobody family. From a nobody town, nowhere town. And there was a certain hiddenness about Jesus when he first came. Some people received him as what he truly was, the very son of God. But many did not. Many didn't receive him. So he came humbly and, in a sense, quietly. 
But when he comes again, there will be no such problem in identifying him as what he truly is. For he will come in glory and he will be surrounded by all his angels. All his angels. You know, when, a, when an important leader of the world arrives for a state visit somewhere, uh, he or she doesn't arrive on a bike or on the tube in London. He brings all his entourage and all his officials and all his security people and all the cars and all the spare ambulances and all the other, other, other paraphernalia to do with the greatness of the king or the president or whatever it is. And they come in pomp and ceremony to declare their importance to the world. Well, that's, and all of that is nothing compared to the glory of the Son of God who will come on that last day. Whatever you have seen in the news of these state visits is nothing compared to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone will know about it. Everyone will see it as he is surrounded by this mighty entourage of angels of heaven. When will he come? Well, we've covered this already. He will come at the end of the age, said Jesus in 24.13, or he agreed with the disciples when they stated that. But as Jesus says, nobody knows when that is going to be. Even at that point, Jesus didn't know when he was going to return in 24.36. But the only thing we know is that when he comes, it will be unexpected. And when he comes, he comes first for judgment, and it will be the last judgment. Some people wonder why there has to be a judgment at all. Why can't Jesus just come if he's coming? Why can't God just uh, forgive all our sins and just pass over them? Well, we can answer that question. Why does he need to come in judgment in a couple of ways, a couple of levels, if you like? One is a simple one that's is to do with the fulfillment of prophecy. The last days have been promised. This last day has been promised. That day of judgment, the day of reckoning. And especially towards the Old Testament, as the prophets began to speak about the sins of Israel, that there would be a day, an ultimate day of reckoning. However, of course, that answer doesn't answer everything, does it? Because it just kicks the problem down the road. Why, does, why did God give the prophecy in the first place? Why does he need to do that? And so that brings us to the second reason, a more fundamental reason, why there has to be judgment. And it has to do with the very character of God himself. That God is utterly and beautifully holy. And in a sense, the... The decision to judge is not a choice that God makes. Because it's to do with his, the nature of his being, to do with his character as the Holy One. It's not that he chooses to be holy. It is that he is holy in his essence and in his being. And so he cannot choose to be otherwise than be opposed 
to evil and to sin. And that means that there, the universe that he has created is built upon that moral foundation that comes from the very character of God himself. And so the very fabric of the universe is built upon a moral foundation. If you doubt that, ask yourself, why is, why is it that every single human society on earth, a, a, human, a, a society of human beings that have been given life at their creation by God, to think and to, to, to ponder great things far beyond the animal kingdom, why is it that every human society has a sense of right and wrong, good and evil? Why is it that every society institute some sort of system of justice which everybody understands is necessary for any society to function well because all of that reflects the fact that the universe is built upon a moral foundation which comes from the very character of God himself that he rules and reigns in holiness and righteousness And we cannot change his holiness. He cannot change his holiness. There are certain things that God cannot do. He he does all things, but he cannot change himself. Nor does he want to. Or would he want to. We cannot expect him, therefore, to be not holy any more than we can expect the sun not to be the sun anymore. With which, of course, we have to treat with great respect. The sun gives us life, doesn't it? But you don't want to get too close. Or you'd be consumed. Well, the holiness of God is something like that. But greater. Well, that's the basis for why there has to be a judgment. There are people who think that there is no such thing as judgment. That they, they will live their lives as though there's not going to be a judgment. I can do, get, if I can get away with something, then... I'm going to try and get away with something. And I've got power and authority and I've got money and influence and that gives me power to do what I like. And there's going to be no reckoning. So many people live their lives like that. They live to please themselves. And even if it hurts other people, so what? Nobody's going to call me to account. Well, if that's you this morning, beware there is one who's coming and he will settle accounts with you his name is Jesus Christ and he's coming are you ready for it? are you ready for the day when he arrives with his great multitude of angels and he will call you to account oh here's the second thing who's going to face that judgment and here we'll be quicker because the answer is fairly simple and to the point The answer is found in verse 32. Who's going to come before him? Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another. All the nations. All the human race. Every single human being will be gathered before him. And let's be clear. This this includes not only people who are living today. Or living at the time when Jesus returns, but all people who have ever lived. That's what Paul says to young Timothy. To Timothy chapter 4 verse 1. He says, 
giving a charge to Timothy about to preach the gospel, preach the word. And he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. So this knowledge of Jesus coming as judge for Timothy is to shape Timothy's ministry as a younger minister. But when that Jesus comes, he's going to judge the living and the dead. That's what we confess in the Apostles' Creed, isn't it? Month by month as we take the Lord's Supper. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Using the old language of quick, meaning living. The quick and the dead. And so all people from every nation, every place, every age will appear before this King of glory. And that's why the Bible says in a couple of places... Philippians chapter 2 and prophet Isaiah, every knee will bow before him. Every knee will bow before him when he comes. And some will do it with joy as his people to acknowledge the King of kings and Lord of lords. But some people will do it unwillingly because they hate him. And even on that last day, they will fight against him. But they will bow at this king. Everyone here this morning will bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. Will you bow the knee willingly with joy in your heart? Or will you bow the knee unwillingly, resentful, proving that you're wrong all your life? but with no way to change it. So, simple answer. Everyone is a subject of this judgment. Here's the third thing. What's the basis upon which he will judge men and women? And what we find here is that there are two accounts given of the pronouncement that the king will make. Uh, one to those on his right, to his sheep, um, and the other to those on his left, the goats, as he describes them. But in both cases, the basis of the judgment is the same. Um, so you look at verses 35 to 40. He says, For I was hungry, king, the king says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And, and so the sheep have served their brothers, and therefore they have served Christ. You see? Now you compare that with the other side, in verses 42 to 45, and I won't read it, but it's almost verbatim the same, but in the negative. You didn't do these things. You didn't do all these things. And therefore, you didn't serve Christ. But the point is the basis of the judgment is the same. Now let me just unpack the basis of this judgment a little more. The basis of judgment is not, let me mention a couple of things it's not. 
It is not based on your verbal profession. You know, the words that you say. You know, I believe in Jesus. Yes, of course I believe in Jesus, therefore I'm a Christian. No, it's not, ba- not on the basis of that. It's not enough to do that. You know, Matthew chapter 7 gives us an example of, of people who said, Lord, Lord, didn't we not call on your name? Didn't we do great things in your name? And the Savior says, depart from me, I never knew you. It's not what you say that matters. It's not on the basis of your, uh, your profession. Nor is it on the basis of your, uh, your reputation or anything like that, anything external about you. Um, you might remember the five foolish virgins um, in verses 1 to 13. And do you remember that all the ten virgins looked identical? But you remember that were five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. And the wise ones were received into the, the wedding feast, but the foolish ones were so unprepared that they had to go off and find oil, and meanwhile the door closed, and they couldn't get in. Now, to all intents and purposes, to the outside world, they looked the same. They had the same reputation as everyone else. But what they didn't have was that regard, that regard for the bridegroom, the Savior, that meant that they were prepared. So it's not on the basis of your outward reputation or appearance or anything like that. Rather, the basis of this judgment, and I'm putting it carefully here, is the practical practical evidence of the fruit of Christian living. I'm being careful here, and I need to explain it quite a bit more. But I, I just need to pause at that point. And ask the question, you see, this is a question that we all must face this morning. If I call myself a Christian, am I filled with the kind of compassion for brothers and sisters that responds positively to the needs that arise around me? Is the compassion of God... Filling my soul. You see, it's not something that you can work up within your, from within yourself. This is a compassion that can only come from God. It is the compassion of God to those in need. And that compassion takes up residence in the believer. Because he or she is changed by the grace of God. And so the question for you and me is, does that compassion flow through your life like that? Is Christ really changing you to be like him? Now having said that, I need to just clear up a misunderstanding that may arise at this point. Because you might be thinking that I'm saying, and Jesus is saying, eternal life is earned by my acts of service. In other words, that somehow through my works... I have earned Jesus' approval. But of course you know that that would destroy all that the Bible teaches about salvation and justification. And in fact we see that in this chapter. That that can't be the interpretation. 
Because remember that chapters 24 and 25 are all one sermon. Jesus is speaking from beginning to end. And his teaching has to be consistent all the way through. He can't contradict himself in the middle of it. Say on the one hand it's all about relationship to to me as the bridegroom. And then at the end say well it's all about your works though. He can't be saying that. So what's he saying? The parable of the five virgins. Let me just unpack it again. And summarize the the, the, the chapter. The parable of the five virgins... Of the five wise virgins, the five foolish ones, the five wise virgins are seeking the bridegroom and they are active in seeking the bridegroom. They are looking for the bridegroom. They are preparing for the bridegroom. The five foolish ones weren't. There's an event. You know, I'm going to go to an event. They don't care about the bridegroom, they're not ready. So it's all about their relationship to the bridegroom. It really distinguishes them from, uh, from the, those who are unwise. In the second parable of the talents, the issue, the central issue, and I hope this came out as we looked at this, the central issue is about how the servants view the master. That the two servants who, who did well with what they were given were servants who knew their master and loved him and served him and got a return for him. Whereas the third servant, he didn't know the master at all. He said, I thought you were a hard man. And so I just hid the money in the ground. See, he totally misunderstood the the master. And so the, the fundamental issue is, what's the relationship to the master? But whether he was going to be get a reward, or whether he was going to be cast out into darkness. And it's the same here. The motive for the works of service that are described here is this prior love for the Lord Jesus Christ that causes his sheep to become servants. In other words... All this chapter, the root issue is your love for and your faith in the Savior. And that has its effects in changing your life. It issues in certain patterns of life. Faith comes first, works follow. Um, Most people say works are not necessary for salvation. It's actually not strictly true. In a certain sense, Works are necessary because they necessarily must follow. They don't save you, but they must follow. Works of service and compassion of the heart must follow if you're a Christian. You cannot be indifferent to your brothers and sisters. It's impossible if you're truly a Christian. So you're saved by faith, through faith alone, but that faith that saves is never alone. Something I learned as a student. The faith, you're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. So that's the basis. Here's the last thing. The nature of the judgment. And the nature of that judgment is, is one of separation from him. Not just from each other, but from him. 
There is, first of all, that separation to the left and to the right. And there is significant, significance to those sides that somebody who's on the right-hand side is somebody in a place of blessing. For example, the son ascended to the right hand of the father when he went to heaven after his resurrection. Uh, the Lord talks about how he's going to uphold his people in Isaiah 41.10. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The right hand of God is the, the, the hand of blessing and mercy and grace to us. So being on the right hand is a place of blessing. But on the, play, on the left, the left is a place of cursing contrary, on the contrary. And the result of this separation to the right... For the, for, for the people who go to the right is, that he, is to give them eternal life. You see that there in verse 34. Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. And at the end, they will, the righteous will go to eternal life. Now there are a couple of things to be said about the blessedness of the people on his right One is simply that they are blessed of his Father. Uh, Both the Father and the Son are united in this verdict. There is no division in the persons of the Trinity. It's not like Jesus is kind of arm wrestling his Father to agree with him. Or anything like that. Some people think that. It's not. Trinity is united of one will and mind on the matter. There's no division. But then the other aspect of this is that uh, this blessing of eternal life is, is not a snap decision in the moment. Actually, it's been made from before the foundation of the earth. Did you notice that? From before the foundation of the world, God has been preparing that place for his people. And it shows us, that shows us, if nothing else does, that this blessing cannot be earned. Because God has already prepared it for his people. For whom he planned to save and send his son to die. And Holy Spirit to bring to life. So it's granted as a gift. Now what's that blessing going to be like? Well, who knows? You know, we can't contain the thought of it, can we? We can get inklings of it and ideas of it from scripture. But it will be amazing and unsearchable. And indescribable. And remarkable. And all for eternity. An amazing thing. So that's one, one side of the verdict. But the other side of the judgment is the others go to eternal fire, verse 41, or to eternal punishment. And that eternal fire is the very de- definition of hell or Hades. It is a place of suffering and torment. And notice that, that same adjective describes hell as does life in Christ's kingdom. It's eternal, eternal punishment, eternal fire. There are some people who believe that, yes, okay, judgment comes, but uh, it'll be a sort of snap thing, and once it's done, it's done, and you'll be gone forever, annihilated. But I hope that's not true of eternal life. (laughs) You know, eternal life. I hope that's going to go on for a long time. But if that's true... Isn't it also going to be that eternal punishment is going to go on for a long time? That's the point, you see. There is no going back. And there will be suffering forever. And the question for each one of us this morning is, 
Will you be amongst those of whom Jesus says, to whom Jesus says, Come you who are blessed by my Father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world? Or will you hear him say, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels? What he says then will depend on what you say to him now. Whether or not you have now you have come into that saving relationship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Whether you treat him as this glorious bridegroom with whom you want to rejoice. Whether you treat him as the master whom you love and serve. Whether you treat him as the one who's at the center of all your serving for other people. It's your attitude to him that will determine his verdict on that day. May God grant you his blessing that you may know him and love him and serve him as he calls us to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, these words. These are sobering words and difficult to speak about, maybe to hear as well. But Lord God, we pray you'd impress these warnings upon our hearts that we might tremble, uh, impress the promises upon our hearts that we might rejoice, impress the commands upon us that we might obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.